Welcome to the Glow Journal Podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the co-founder of Lush, Rowena Bird. There are few brands and in-store experiences as universally recognisable as Lush. Having now spoken to Rowena and knowing just what went into Lush's creation, it is unsurprising that the brand is the icon that it is today. Rowena is surprised, however, and telling me that she and her five Lush co-founders hadn't expected that the brand would explode in the way that it has. And she certainly didn't expect that as of 2020, Lush would boast some 951 stores globally. Rowena has always loved beauty, and after completing her studies as a beauty therapist in the early 1980s, she took a job at a beauty clinic in Dorset. It was here that she would meet all five of her future Lush co-founders, a group she tells me each had completely different skills. She also tells me that she believes that this is the secret to Lush's success, that and the fact that all six of them really do get along. Lush was launched in 1995, and despite opening stores in London, Croatia, Australia, Brazil, New Zealand, and Ireland within only a few years, Rowena describes the brand's growth as really organic. Another part of the Lush story that she believes was integral to its success, explaining that if they'd launched with the intention of going zero to 60 too quickly, they'd likely have failed. She tells me that what they really wanted to create through Lush was fun, theatre, experience and an escape through beauty. And that is precisely what they've done. In this conversation, Rowena shares the catalyst that led to the inception of Lush and a wild coincidence that took place on the very same date as our interview. How Lush led the sustainability charge by launching packaging-free products over 25 years ago, and why overstaffing their stores may have been one of the best decisions they ever made. I have read that while your mother didn't really wear a lot of makeup while you were growing up, your Auntie Penny was a bit of a glamour. So let's start there. What is your very, very earliest memory of beauty? I think it's mum and lipstick. Mm-hmm. And then um, Auntie Penny lived with with my grandmother, Amy. And so, you know, like most grandmothers, they were great at babysitting. So I would go and stay and um, her house was sort of like a, a long, a, along the road, but she had a great big garden. So it was great. You could go and lose yourself in the garden, spend the whole day there. But um, if it was raining or if I was, was bored in the garden, I'd go and hang out in Auntie Penny's bedroom because Auntie Penny was at work. And I, I always imagined that Auntie Penny never knew that I went through all her stuff. But I'm sure she probably did. I'm sure I didn't tidy up after myself. Um, but it's, I suppose it's more the smell really than than anything else because cosmetics then smelt so lovely. Every, the face powder smelt and she had lots of perfume. She used to wear lemon, which was, it's just so sweet. And whenever I smell it now, I just think of, it takes me right back to being tiny. Um, so yeah, and and painting Granddad's head. Granddad had a bald head, and I used to paint makeup on his head. Amazing. And my mum's friends would come round, and I'd go through their bags if I was allowed, and play with their makeup. And people would give me the ends of their lipsticks or ends of their eyeshadows. And so I had quite a collection. It was really in my cardboard box that I used to carry around with me. <laughs> oh, very glamorous. Oh yeah. I mean, how interesting that one of your earliest of memories of beauty is around scent, given yes. that, you know, the but Lush that was something identity. that I would have made as well. We, you know, we, we lived um, next to a wood and we definitely collected bluebells and mm. we collected roses, much to the neighbours' disgust, I'm sure, when we decided that we needed their roses. Um, but, yeah, I had a friend who lived about eight doors up, Maureen, and between us, you know, we must have been a nightmare. <laughs> but always up to something, very busy. So what did you think that you might be when you grew up? A princess. Oh, perfect. 
Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely perfect. What did you decide you might be after you realized the um the lengths that one must go to to become a princess? Because I've thought about it as well and I just think it might be a little bit too hard. No, no, I'm I'm definitely there. I'm oh, wonderful. Yes. <laughs> Um, I, I didn't really have an idea, to be honest, and, um, and, and so I, I just did things that I liked. And then I went to a careers officer, and and I can remember it. It was in this dark little office place, and I turned up, and I probably had very brightly coloured tights on, different coloured nails on each finger, which which wasn't a thing then, which it is it is now, and a wig and makeup. Mm-hmm. And he took sort of one look at me and, and just sort of said, well, have you thought about doing beauty therapy? And I said, I don't even know what that is. And because my mum wouldn't have been into any of that. Hairdressers, mm-hmm. yes, but not beauty. And and he explained it to me. And I went, well, that's a proper job. And, and it was just sort of like, yes, of course, that's what I want to do. And luckily, I had enough qualifications to get in mm-hmm. and the right ones. And I got a place uh, in Warwickshire in Nuneaton Technical College and started my beauty course, which was two years full on. And when my mum went to school, a uh, parents' evening for my brother, she met my biology teacher. And part of beauty therapy, there's a lot of biology. It's not all just sure. about how to file a nail. Um, there's a lot of biology involved. You do the, the first year nurses biology training and the, the biology teacher was like, what? what <laughs> it was a, she just couldn't believe it because i think i just played up quite a lot in the biology class obviously so she was quite stunned that i'd done anything that needed biology but i loved it it was um it was a great course and i'm still in touch with with three of the girls from the course so and that was what 40 years ago well this fun. this i wanted to ask you about because it was 40-ish years ago, I can imagine that beauty therapy and certainly the training has changed a bit since then. But were there any takeaways or any lessons from that training that have really stuck with you? I think probably it's not much to do with beauty, but it's one of the things that you're taught at school when when you're going to go into a salon is that you make notes and remember what's important to your customers or your clients as they come in. And, and that has stuck with me. I'm really, I always like to remember things when people tell me that they're moving house or they're doing this or they're doing that. And I think it's important to remember those things. I think probably what I was taught more than anything else, it's important to listen. And um, yeah, and that's probably what stuck with me most. I like to listen to people. I like to remember things about them and be able to follow up on that because people are important. I love that. It was soon after graduating that you took a job at a beauty clinic in Dorset and it was here that you met the group who would go on to become your Lush co-founders. Now, I want to hear more about this time. What were each of your different roles in that business? So at the time, there was only, um, I think, five of us in the company. So there was was me and I joined... Liz Bennett, who was the other beauty therapist, mm-hmm. and then Mark Constantine, who was a trichologist, and so that's a hair and scalp expert. So I worked at 29 High Street, where we still are, and I was in the second beauty room. And I was brought in because I could do electrolysis, massage, pedicures, things that Liz didn't really like. Liz's specialities were facials, manicures, um, and, and skin consultations, really. And then Mark's uh, speciality was hair and scalp and I used to wash off Mark's treatments and you know help I assisted him and in between that we were making products for the body shop and inventing products for the body shop so I'd be filling essential oils or make it I used to make henna in the evenings put the mix of hennas together and so it, it was I think there was those early days where I really learned that being adaptable, saying yes and having a go was what it was all about. You know, if I sat there going, oh, well, I'm the beauty therapist. I can't possibly do that. I can't possibly mix henna's. I can't possibly type up invoices. Um, or I can't possibly uh, go off and drive a car to take you to see a bird that's sort of like, you know, an hour's down the road that's just come into Dorset because Mark's an avid bird watcher. 
I, you know, I don't think I'd wear where I'd be where I am today. The whole fun of it is that I just love doing something new, changing it about, not having to do the same things every day, and 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 that sort of I think set me up in good stead because beauty rooms in those days weren't busy really when we were at the wrong end of the high street we still are um it you know it wasn't that busy so to fill in my time i type in voices i you know i do 101 things and uh, and that's still with me today much as you know i haven't really suffered as many people have during the pandemic um i am a little bit bored of just sitting now doing mm. meetings on online and going from one to the other you know I, I'm starting to go back into work a um, couple of days a week which is lovely because then I can get up move around go and speak to somebody um, and and it keeps it lively it's a real novelty to leaving the house now that I don't yeah. think will wear off on me for quite some time <laughs> now was it around that same time that you launched Bodkins um Bodkins was early days mm-hmm. um and that was in Seattle and we launched there because uh Mo's so Mark and Mo are a married couple in the business and Mo's sister lives there uh with her with her husband and uh, so we thought well we'd go there um yeah, because we, we couldn't really do anything in the UK because of um, our connection with Body Shop. Uh, so we went to America and, and did that there. So, I mean, it was great fun. It was, um, yeah, we had two shops over there. It was in Seattle. I used to go over there a lot and do TV and, and sell things in the shop. That's when I made my first makeup range. Um, and I was tutored there by Stan Crystal, who invented Mary Quant and Nibia Cream and yeah so he was a consultant to us an advisor and he was lovely such uh, an inspirational man and so much character and I learned how to make makeup from him so the first makeup range was out there and we we had a few shots I mean we still have a product called Happy Hippie which is a grapefruit and lemony shower gel and that was invented in the days of Bodkins so that product must be 35 years old um, wow. Yeah, we're, it's funny, we're, we're like that with people. We don't like losing people. We love, you know, once you're in the, the Lush family or the Bodkins family, yeah, we like to keep you in there. And we're the same with product. <laughs> so like, if you're, you know, if you're a lovely product, you'll keep going through every transformation of the business that we, that we have. <laughs> Happy Hippie is one of them. Amazing. It was around 1990-ish that you launched Cosmetics To Go. At what point had the group of you begun to think and to talk about launching a new business together? What led up to that launch? I, I don't really know that. I think it was more of an accident that it happened. We mm-hmm. sold um, our formulas to Body Shop. They they floated. Yeah, I mean they would have been the catalyst for this. They they floated. They went on stock market. So. Um, that it was no longer appropriate for us to be such a big player in their business. So we sold them the formulas and I think it was, I think we had 9 million pounds for that. And we decided that we'd start our own business. We were really into um, a company from America called Banana Republic and they did really great catalogs and they used to do illustration for all their, they didn't photograph anything. They sold jackets and, Basically, they sold things that were that they'd find piles of stock left over in a corner somewhere. Then they'd take it and they'd sell them. So they had all these like white waiters jackets and safari stuff, and and it was just superb. And that and t-shirts and and everything was illustrated. And we really loved it. And we used to order stuff from Banana Republic in America. Uh, it's not the Banana Republic that's out today. And the. I had an idea. I was working with um, Susan Severs and Stephen Smalls, two two of the guys that in the work. And wh- what about making a range of products that we could sell to Banana Republic? How amazing would that be? So we created this whole safari range, which was products that did more than one thing that you could take on safari. And so you had the whole set of stuff. And it mm. included a, a wash, um, a lip balm, skin cream that had SPF in that you could use in your hair. I mean, it was just, it was great. 
And I created this, um, this range with them and we did the labels, we made it in a Hessian wrap. And we thought, well, we'll sell this to Banana Republic. We then sent it to Mark. Mark was on a um, body shop actually trip where he mm -hmm. was training or doing something with the body shop. So we sent it to arrive to him by a mail order as it were. And these are all accidental, nothing of this is impossible. Uh, nothing of this is planned. And we've sent it to him and it, it was sort of like, and he loved getting it and he loved the surprise of it and opening with it and it had chocolate in it. And it was just great. Uh, he really loved that idea. And then we sold the shares, we sold our formulas to Body Shop and it was like, well, what about doing mail order? And we could just send people these lovely parcels. Banana Republic completely ignored us. Uh, didn't, didn't want to do anything with our product. They never came back to us. What we didn't realize at the time that was Mel and Pat Siegler, who owned Banana Republic, were actually selling out to the Gap. So they wouldn't have been in a position to take anything. Right. So we just thought, well, what about doing our own mail order then? And mail order was sort of, you know, it was quite different to what it is today. Uh, I came up with the idea of cosmetics to go because I'd seen, I think it was sofas to go. And I thought that was quite clever to go. Mm -hmm. So we did cosmetics to go. Um, and that's where, really where it was born. And we started that and it ran for a good few years, five years. But we, we over-traded in the end because we love customer service. We love our customers. And so we were, we were putting way too much effort and freebies into these parcels. You could get a stick of rock, you'd get chocolate, you could get, I mean, all sorts of things. You get sticks of rock because we're from the seaside and it had cosmetics to go written all the way through it. And, and it just really, we managed to overtrade. Then one fatal Christmas, we had a leak where the builder had taken a radiator off upstairs, hadn't really plumbed it properly. All the water came through the building, went across all the computers oh. and, and we sort of lost everything. So we had to recover from that, lost the business. Um, and then, but the six of us that had been working together pretty much, uh, you know, for the whole time, we were sort of like, well, we're not actually employable by anyone else. I went off to try and get a job with Per Lindstrand because he was, he has, hot air balloons which he makes and he flies and I've, I've always wanted to be a balloon pilot so I thought wow. well, I'm going to go and get a job there. Mark said to me don't take less than I don't know what it was salary £8,000 or something which shows you how long ago it was couldn't live on that very well mm -hmm. now and um, he you know so I was way too expensive for him and then we just yeah, we kept meeting. It was Mo's birthday. We met in the garden. It's actually Mo's birthday today. So oh. I think, so June 24th. So I think that was probably today was the catalyst of Lush maybe because we met in the garden for Mo's birthday and it was just like, you know what? There's, we're not any good for anyone else because we're too offbeat. We're too off the wall. We're too independent. We're too arsy. We're going to have to just work together. And it was like, okay, what are we going to do? And, and that was really the concept of Lush. But we were going to be the cosmetic warriors from the Temple of Temptation. Uh, that was too long to go on the labels, really. Yeah. So we held a competition for the, for the name, for our previous Cosmetics to Go customers. And, and Lush was the winner. That's what we chose. It's short. It's punchy. It has more than one meaning. It's very us. It is full of burden. And it's, it's all about excess. And that's what we love. Uh, and uh, yeah so actually how constant is that today yeah. is probably the day my lush started what are the yeah. chances 365 yeah. days in a year and this is the day that we've landed i know on. and that's just occurred to me so well done <laughs> so what was your goal in launching lush what did you feel was missing from the existing cosmetics market Do you know we 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 weren't thinking that grandly. I mean, really what we want, we were a bit, you know, we were battered and broken from the loss of cosmetics to go. That was very upsetting for us. Um, it's a failure of a business. We lost, you know, we lost the jobs, basically of all the people that worked for us and went down owing money. It, it, it was awful, awful time. So we were having to recover from that. And what we figured was actually, if we could open shops within the M25, which is the ring road around London, then that, that would do. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't have any money for packaging, so we started to invent product that didn't need packaging. <laughs> and from there, the naked, the naked stream was was done. We we knew we had a good because um, of Bodkins. We knew that we had products 
already and because of cosmetics to go we knew we had products that people loved so we introduced those in there and and we created some new ones and we were literally we were in 29 high street and pool and we were making product upstairs bringing it downstairs and selling it out of um, the shop at 29 high street which was still our home um i was downstairs helen was upstairs and mark was upstairs making stuff bringing it down and we all did whatever we we needed to do i did car boot sales to raise money to buy raw materials I ran up my credit card. You know, everybody sort of like chipped in to to do whatever was needed, and and then we had a call um, from um, a New Zealander, Andrew Geary, who was he lives in he's living in um, London, and he was asking whether we were going to redo the shaving cream that he'd really loved from Cosmetics to Go. And anyway, the conversation went on. He was working with somebody who liked to invest in businesses. We, um, you know, so Mark met Peter and Andrew and investment was given to us and we opened our first shop in London and then we opened our second shop in London. And while we were in London, I was arranging my marriage. I was organizing, I was organizing my wedding and my, and, and then soon after we got married in, um, July in 95. And then straight after that, we moved up to London and opened the Kings Road store. And, and from there on, it sort of took off. People would see us in Kings Road, see us in Covent Garden and the Canadians came in and they said we want to take it to Canada and we were like, oh goodness, we're not even thinking about going outside of London. You know, pool in London was was all that we could cope with. Said, so, well, we don't know anything about trading in other countries so you're going to have to do all of that but we'll invent the product and, and you can just, you know, sell it on our behalf and this is what your shops have to look like. So there was a sort of agreement of how it would be um, but not a firm plan. And then um, we met Joe from Croatia and he said the same thing. He wanted to take it to Croatia for his sister-in-law. So the business then started there. And then Andrew's friend, who's Australian, he came and said, oh, I'd like to take it to Australia. So, I mean, it just sort of organically grew. It was never a big explosion of anything. It's The growth has been extremely organic. So that's how you cope with it, I think. If you decide you want to go from zero to 60 really quickly, that would have been very difficult for us to cope with, I think, because we were learning everything along the way. I mean, there's six founders. We all had different skills. So, you know, I was adaptable. I'd gone on the shop floor. I did the systems and, and sort of ran the shops. Liz did all the training on the products. Uh, Mo set up the factory and created or making the product mark is very much the um sort of the visionary helen was inventing wonderful products and paul was doing all the um sort of the tech side so creating labels and all, and all that sort of stuff and then carl came back with us soon after and so it was you know very much a mixture i always say that if you're going to start your own business start with a team of people that all have different skills that complement mm. put them all together it's a bit like cooking isn't it if you get all the right yeah. ingredients together you make a wonderful dish and and i think that's the secret to our success we we all have um great skills that all complement each other and then we actually like each other as well which helps and then you know we can we can work together and, and that's how we've created lush and then along the way you bring in people who have great skills that have better skills than you do. You, or, you know, always employ people that are better than you because you're always going to be the boss anyway. So employ people that are better than you. And then that supports the whole business and, and takes it off. And, and that's been our ethic, really. You mentioned in there that this was a packaging free brand because at that time you were basically selling like bricks of product that consumers could come in and just cut off. That was 1995 though. Were people even talking about sustainability at that point? I don't think they were. I mean, you know, it was driven because we didn't have any money. And also we, we were looking to think, okay, look, if we're going to come back out again, let's do something different. Let's not just be another cosmetics company out here. Um, we didn't want to look like body shop. Um, you know, we, we had great respect for them, but we, we didn't want to just be, a, a, another body shop so 
We the the big blocks of soap came from the cheese shop. We, we found a lovely cheese shop in Covent Garden. The blackboard writing came from a wine shop called Oddbins that used to write on blackboards underneath the wine. You know, this wine is great with spag bog and stuff like that. Um, so that came from there. The dark wood came from Paul Smith, the fashion guy, yeah. his shop in London. I, you know, we were just going, and then the, the way we stacked our ballistics, the bath bombs on the trays to look like fruit came from markets that we'd visited, like in Sweden and, um, you know, and, and uh, UK. So we were going around saying, right, what do we love from different areas completely? And what could we then put in? We knew we wanted to create theatre. So we're all drama queens in our own way. So we knew we wanted to create theatre in the shop. We wanted people to come in and, and have sort of like, you know, come in and just experience something. It's not just, not just shopping. It was coming in and just having this lovely experience when you come in and seeing a demonstration of something fizzing in the water. I mean, somebody rub cream on, talk to you about the beautiful ingredients we're using. Look at all the, you know, the, just everything we wanted to have a story about everything that we were doing and um yeah and so that's that's sort of how it started we just knew that we wanted to create a bit of drama a bit of theater and then create some fun and escape for people to come in you've mentioned that the growth was really organic but i would love to just talk a little bit more about this growth because i am always so interested in founders that have done something so new and different for that time because of course the goal is always to innovate but that also has to come with this additional you know time and money spent educating consumers to get them to come on board so how did that work for you basically we overstaffed our shops I think so that there was always staff there to talk to people Mm -hmm. you know so when you come in you should be welcomed and you should have somebody you know if you want to tour around the shop and you want things explained to you there's going to be somebody there to do that and that's what we felt was more important we didn't want people to come in and have to read everything we you know yeah we overstaffed our shops and and had people there that were enthusiastic and had the same passion as we did that you know the job ad I don't know whether it still does but used to have if you love bathing you you know it had to be in there because you know don't join us if you don't because it's that's what it's all about well that strategy clearly worked because as of last year there was something like 951 lush stores globally now growth of that size of course has to change the way that a business operates given that lush is all about these fresh handmade cosmetics was it difficult to scale up and to scale up so quickly See, it doesn't feel like a quick scale up because it was organic. It feels like, you know, you have little growth spurts, but it mm-hmm. wasn't, you know, it's not the naught to 60. So it, it hasn't felt difficult. I think if you look back and think, right, how it was like 25 years ago, 26 years ago, and today you think, crikey, I don't even know how we came to be here. You know, I used to run the shops. Could I go in and run a shop now? No, they're, they're completely different. Yeah, I could have a good go, but I wouldn't be able to do all the things that our managers do now. That Our managers are like, they're entrepreneurs. They run their stores. They're, they have full autonomy on their stores. So um, it would be quite a different thing. I mean, there's loads more people and it takes flipping ages to get anything done now because um, we used to do it all ourselves. Yeah. That was easy. Now there's people that do it. And you can't do it yourself because the people who do it have to do it. And then the people that do it have somebody else that does something. So it, from that point of view, it's a very different business. It, it takes a lot. It feels to me that it takes a lot longer to get things done. It should be shorter because there's more people. But it actually takes longer because there's more people that are mm. doing things. Um, so, yeah, it's. Yeah, it doesn't bear thinking about really. It's just like, you know, just get on with it, be adaptable, get on. And and that's what we do. So that way, you, you know, you're not thinking about, oh my goodness, how are we going to cope with that? You're just thinking, come on, let's get on with it. And the people in the business are all active people that just get on with it. So, yeah. 
just get on with it. Love it. The Lush product offering is expansive, as you've said to yourself. Yeah. If you are onto a good product, you keep it in the offering forever. I would love to know how that product development process works. Are you constantly thinking about, okay, what's going to come next for Lush or are you working off consumer demand or is it a bit of both? It's a bit of both. I mean, you can't, we're not um, prescriptive inventors. We're inventors out of our heads. So Mm -hmm. we have, I don't know how many inventors, maybe 12 and they are all bonkers and in a great way, you know, so all the product that you see in the shop is a fraction of what's been invented. And Mark really has the main job. He, his favorite job is to look at the product and decide whether we're actually going to release it or not. And that's what he prides himself on is choosing that, finding a product that has a good sort of heart, a good essence, and then go, it's not quite right. How do we expand on that? How do we get it? So that we're always pushing it. Very rarely do you invent a product that is complete in its first invention, in its first um, showing. You know, maybe the fragrance needs to change, the color needs to change. It needs more of this. It needs less of that. Can we make it solid? Are we going to put it in a pot? What are we going to do with it? Um, so it's it's quite a complex thing. People go, oh, I'd love to be a product inventor. Yeah, well, good luck, because it's really flipping hard to come up with something that isn't already out there, that has a twist. It's It's got to have beautiful ingredients in it that have a purpose. Like, we never want to just make something because, like, oh, the market wants a, a white lotion that does this. No, no, the people want something that when you spend your money, it's going to make a difference to your hair, to your skin, to how you feel. To it's, it's got to be active. It's got to be purposeful. It's got to have a reason. And it, it's, got to be, it's got to be worth it. Otherwise, what's the point? We, you know, sometimes our lotions are a bit thicker and a bit thinner depending on, on the temperature outside. We're not going to make something and, and then say, oh, well, it's not the right thickness, therefore we'll just add a bit more of this, but then it's not as effective on the skin. But it looks the same. That's not our interest. Our interest is how is this going to work for you? Have we put something in it that is effective and has purpose? Yes, then that's that's what we're pleased with. Yeah, I love that philosophy. While we are on product development, obviously Lush are known for this concept of fresh cosmetics. This is a big and complicated question, but does developing with fresh ingredients complicate the process? I can only imagine it would. It's what we've always done. So therefore, it's how we work. It's what you yeah, know. So if you're trying, exactly, if you're trying to change from going from this to fresh, from you know any old thing, load it up with preservative, which is what mainly happens. Yeah. Um, you know, then, then you would find it difficult. You'd think, oh, I can't compute with this. It can't be right. But if... You know, the reason it's fresh is because we're using beautiful, fresh ingredients. We want you to use the oils when they're freshly pressed, really. We want you to use fresh flowers, fresh fruits, fresh butters, all things that are are glorious. And so we put them in. They last a long time. Yeah, we put 14 months on there, but they'll last longer than that. They didn't say But also part of being fresh is we don't want to load it with preservative because the yeah. preservative is there to stop the product going off, but it also works on the skin's flora. So, and you don't want to kill all the flora on your skin. You, you know, that's mm. what makes your skin glowy and healthy. And so by using beautiful, fresh ingredients with that are active, you don't want to kill that off with a whole load of preservatives. So self-preserving is really important to us, which means the product actually preserves itself. Naked is important to us because then you don't have to put any preservative in at all. And, you know, but, then we also recognize that customers want things that behave in a different way to use those ingredients. We have to put preservative in. Helen works very, very closely with it to make sure that it has the right preservative system for that product. That's what's important Mm. um, to us. So using fresh, no. I mean, other people I think would find it a challenge, but because it's the way we are, then it's, it's normal, normal. 
My favorite, just while we're on that process, mm. my favorite thing when I use a Lush product is the little sticker that tells me who's packed the product. Yeah. It just makes me so happy. Yeah. Well, and they're real people. People say yeah. to us, oh, you're just in anybody's face. I'm like, no, 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 no. They're oh, really you couldn't real get people. away with that. Not with the internet today. <laughs> couldn't. No, you couldn't. But I mean, we've always done it. And it, it's about taking pride in your job because people don't see the people who make that product. Yeah. You know, and that is a skilled job to be a compounder. You are very skilled. So it's sort of like, it's nice, you know, yeah, making your mum's proud. Put your face on it. I'm proud. That way you don't need to police those products yeah. because, you know, if you've made it, you don't want it going out there and you know it's not right. So you know that you've done your best and you've made a beautiful product. And you're proud to put your name on it. Great. I would love to just touch on social media and its impact on the brand. When you launched in 1995, social media, of course, didn't (laughs) exist. Whereas today, I cannot imagine that there is one person listening to this who hasn't seen a video go viral of a lush bath bomb dissolving and all these fabulous colours and beautiful, sparkly, delicious things. On that note, what impact has social media had on the brand? Well, I mean, it's a great tool, isn't it? So, yeah. it, I mean, it, it's, it's social media is a mixed blessing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, ever. Because, you know, sort of like people can say something negative about you and other people believe it. And it may yeah. never be true and it may have been taken out of context. People can say something positive about you, show it in a better light, and then somebody else buys it and thinks, well, I didn't think it was all that. So, you, you know, it, it goes both ways. But I think the beauty of it is it, it spreads a message and it allows more people to see what we're doing. We're very proud of our company. And it's, it's always difficult to say that because pride goes before a fall. But, you know, I will say it because I am extremely proud of the, of the way we are, with the way we buy our raw materials, that the way we work with growers, with um, co-ops and women's groups and sort of the, the thought that goes into where we're buying our raw materials and how we're going to make something, the closed loop that we have with our pots, the you know, just everything about the way that we construct our business um, through social media, you can get that across much easier. And mm. and so I love social media for that. You know, you can go onto like our website, wearelush.com, and you can read about all the policies that we do, all the things, all the thought that goes in behind it. We're not just making cosmetics. We're, we're making a big difference with you know, regeneration programs, with the charity pop programs, with the sustainability with all the things that we're trying to do, which you wouldn't know just from buying something. So social media from that point of view is excellent because it allows people to explore deeper. And I think it's good that people look at the companies that they're buying from, not just from us, but you look at who you're buying from. What are you supporting when you make that purchase? And I think that's really important. Let's spend a bit of time on that because it is so important. Obviously, sustainability has been a focus for the brand since launch and that movement is only growing stronger. In as much or as little detail as you wish, can you talk me through Lush's philosophy, for lack of a better word, and some of the sustainability initiatives that you have in place? Because they are incredible. I, it's remembering them really, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I guess- the, the, the top line is, you know, our aim is to leave the planet lusher than we found it. Um, mm-hmm. And so when you've got that as a top line, you then think about, okay, what are we going to do to, to make that a reality? Because obviously we're a business, so we're taking things all the time. So it is about how do you give back? Um, so, you know, as I mentioned, buying, when you're looking at, the way that we buy. So we set up hubs around the world, which is where we then work with growers, we work with farmers, we work with cooperatives. Now, oftentimes we're joining in with them and we're, we love to educate on permaculture and agriculture and, and forestry and things. We're very aware that if you just plant a monoculture in, 
then nothing else grows around that. That is not actually adding to the planet. Whereas if you can look at permaculture and you can grow two or three things on the same site, then that's great. And then by making things sort of like a cork pot to put your shampoo bar in, that's actually keeping the cork forests alive in Portugal. That's keeping that forest active. That means that the birds can live there, the animals live there. You're creating your own sort of world within that by using the cork because cork got a bad press you know it's been used for years as corking bottles of wine and stuff and then we've sort of gone towards the plastic yeah. or the screw top now so that means the cork industry is shrinking well cork comes from a tree which is a forest and we need the trees and the forests to keep our air clean and absorb the carbon dioxide so by doing something like that, you know, that's what we're interested in. Where can we take something that actually leaves things better than, than it was? Um, you know, we, we, so we're working with a group that are growing patchouli for us so that, you know, where we can get our patchouli oil from. And that means that they are, they've got an industry now, they're, it, it just, Oh, all about it. I mean, at one point, I don't know if we're still working with them, but we were working with a group in Australia for sandalwood and growing the sandalwood trees to get the oil from there. So it was supporting a sandalwood forest that would have been grown. And it's, yeah, it's just so important that if you're leaving the world lusher than you find it, you've got to make changes. So yes, we use plastic packaging, but it's all recycled. You know, you see companies out going, oh, we're going to go to recycled packaging. We've been doing it all the time. All our packaging is always recycled. We're now closed loop, we've been closed loop since 2012 with our black pots. They, they go back in to make more black pots. Um, we're pretty much carbon neutral. We're still working on the last little bits. And, you know, that's important to us. We try and ship things rather than fly things. It's uh, just, oh, you just, oh, there's so many things that we do. I always <laughs> think of as we're like an iceberg. At the top, you see um, our shops and you just think, mm. oh, it's, it's the smelly shop that you go into. <laughs> But underneath, there's all this going on. You know, where we, we have a green hub in the UK, which we're going to extend out to our other manufacturing units. I mean, all your products in Australia are made in Australia. They're handmade by Australians or people living in Australia. And that's really important to us. You don't want all the shipping of all the product coming down, being made somewhere else and being shipped into Australia. No, make it in Australia. Make it be proud to have that. Um, and it's that's important to us. That's why our manufacturing units are dotted around the world so we, that we contain our shipping as much as possible. And you know the, the countries are run by teams within those countries and we keep everything as local as we can. It's important not to sort of expand on that so you know and then we look after the people that work within us we have an ebt we look you know we pay our taxes we just everything that we can to make not only the the planet lusher than we found it but you know hopefully the people that work with us sort of the by paying your taxes, by paying living wages, by having the green hub recycling stuff. It's sort of thinking about every aspect mm. of, um, of what we do. Do we always get it right? No. Can we please everyone? No. But do we try really hard and do we listen when we're told that we're in the wrong? Yes. So, you know, we're not perfect by any means, but we do try really hard and we do listen and we, we do make the difference where we can. You've also got, if research serves me, is it three naked shops completely packaging free? Uh, we did have. We've now um, turned them back into full shops. When uh -huh. we do things like that, we do it. So we had shops and we just put all our naked products in. It was to yeah. highlight the fact, because people weren't even computing when they come around the shop. Hang on, that hasn't got any packaging on it. It's really important to understand that a lot of our products don't have packaging. Mm. You know, I think we're around 70% unpackaged. So when you come in, so we, we decided to do the naked shops to draw highlight to the fact that actually we can actually do a whole shop of cosmetic. You can do all your cosmetic shopping in here and go out with no packaging other than the paper that it's going to be wrapped in to go. Mm. But you could bring in your own containers and put it in there and go out with absolutely no packaging. Um, we think people got the hang. And then we've put it all back in to turn them into full shops. 
but we do yeah we have a fragrance shop in florence which is the birth the home place the home mm. birthplace of fragrance so we were in florence most people think it's in france the, the birthplace of fragrance it isn't it was in florence so we have a fragrance shop there our fragrance mm. library and that's just beautiful we made all the fragrances to go in there so you know we have it in in paris we have fresh and flowers where all the products in there are made fresh so they're ones that you take home you keep in the fridge and that's important and we put it in paris because in paris in this region this district people still go out every day and buy their fresh bread every day buy their fruit and veg every day but you know that's the way they shop so we made it so you can buy your cosmetics every day. So, you know, these things we just love to explore. It's just really great fun. And then when people get the hang of, oh, okay, that's possible to do then, chances are it will be absorbed back into the business. It doesn't mean that it's not in the business. It is. It's just a highlighter. You have been a part of the beauty industry since quite literally as long as you've been working and you've been with Lush since launch some 25 years ago. Over the last few years, to narrow it down, what have been some of the biggest changes that you've seen within the beauty industry? Um, I think, oh, I don't know. I mean, we're still having to fight animal testing. People think it's gone. It hasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, reach is is a thing about you know, where it needs all this um, declarations behind the raw materials, which is going to mean that there's going to be a lot more animal testing they could ask for. We don't need that. Mm. So that sadly hasn't changed. Um, We're still over packaging products. You know, 120 billion units of packaging is made for the beauty industry every year. Where's that going? I mean, yeah, yeah, where is that going? It's got to go somewhere. Well, you know, so it's going to be landfill, isn't it? Or in the ocean mm. or, you know, or burning. And yeah. So, you know, uh, the cardboard boxes that everything is packaged in alone uses up, I mean, it was sort of like 10 million acres of forest every year to make the cardboard boxes that our perfumes and our cosmetics are coming in. You don't mm. need a bloody perfume box. You don't need yeah. it. It is just sort of like, it's just so excessive all the time. So... Sadly, I don't know that we've learned very many lessons in some ways. There's a lot more beauty in, beauty companies out there now. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's a lot more choice. So maybe that's seen as a positive as a consumer. That's really lovely. But I would just say, you know, I think beauty, it, it's hugely important to us as a, for our own self-esteem I think you know people want to it gives us confidence it makes us feel great it's not necessary for life from that point of view but for our mental health I think it's incredibly important so it's nice to have the choices but I think as consumers we should start putting pressure on to companies to get rid of their boxes to get rid of packaging that's so much bigger than the product to ask for the quality that we deserve as consumers and and to put pressure on the the companies to say no stop stop doing that i think consumers can make a bigger change um than the industry will because while people are still buying it they'll still create it and so it it is down to us to make the change well my next question was going to be what changes do you think we can expect to see over the next few years from the industry so hopefully hopefully that well hopefully but i think look out for don't accept that we're going to be more sustainable as a claim on the packaging. What does that mean? You know, you can do it, you know, I'm going to eat less, which means maybe I'll only have five biscuits instead of six. I've eaten less. It's claims that are vague. Look out for the greenwash. Mm. If you can see through that and, and still ask a question beyond, well, what does more mean how much more what percentage would that be how much you know if you can still go beyond that it's greenwash and i think that there's a lot of that and i expect we'll see more so as consumers we should be saying what does that mean company you know what what are you actually doing for that we should care we should care please we've got to care you know i'm sure you're seeing all the same programs as we are about breaking barriers, sea um, spiracy, 
all of those things and the work that's being done sea shepherd is huge down your end i know mm. it's just we, we've got to start listening to these the, the companies the charities the agencies that are telling us they're trying to tell us what's going on and we're blindly going around trying to ignore it because it's too uncomfortable no you've got to look at it you've got to listen you've got to understand that what we do as consumers is making a difference to our planet and we can be that difference if each one of us bought only shampoo bars instead of bottled shampoo we would save so many bottles from going into landfill or needing to be recycled you know most of the plastic i think it's 95 percent of the plastic that's on the planet still here it's still kicking that's ever been made yeah. it's still here it's still kicking around it's not going anywhere plastic is a great ingredient when you need a heart stent or you know different things. it's not an evil um material but the way we use it as single use and just discard it is so yeah. it's down to us again yeah it's yeah i mean we've just got to make better informed decisions really and challenge the people that we buy from and ask them to be different to, you know, ask them to do something usually less rather than more. My final question, what is next for Lush? Ooh, do you know, we, we started, we used to do five year plans and then we felt like mm-hmm. oh, we were achieving them in a year. So it was like, well, we'll pack in doing that now. Um, I just, we just, it's really, you know, we just don't ever know what's next i mean we'd like to be a billion turnover in pounds so from a you know money point of view so we'd like to do if we were in australia we'd like to open a nice big store and have a real store which has lots of i, I think melbourne is being very much highlighted as excellent yeah, experience so how much great how great is that so maybe more big stores i mean there's just so many um there's just so much opportunity, isn't there? You know, social media, the internet, websites. Who knows? The exciting thing is we actually don't know. And so that keeps waking you up every morning going, what are we going to do today? How's it going to be? Who are we going to find to support with our charitable giving? Who are we, you know, who are we going to be able to highlight in our windows to draw attention to something that's going on? I mean, it's just it, the, the gloriousness of it all for me is that I actually don't know, but I know whatever it is, it's going to be amazing, it's going to be inclusive, and um, it's going to be fun, and it's going to leave the planet lusher than we found it. That was Rowena Bird, co-founder of Lush, which you can find on Instagram at lush underscore oznz and at lush. To read this interview, you can visit glowjournal.com and for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at jemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.